Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Truth Seekers. You're listening to Turn It Up, our newest show featured on A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. Turn It Up is all about independent recording. Welcome, Truth Seekers. You're listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. And I'm your host, Michael Fordham. Look, if you just click the link on my webpage or you're listening on blogtalkradio.com or even the Blog Talk Radio player on my Facebook page and you want to call in live, look, we'd love to talk with you. So give us a call. The number is 347-326-9470. Or if you like, you can tweet me your questions and comments at twitter.com slash a measure of truth. Also, if you haven't yet, why don't you look me up on Facebook? I'm the Michael Fordham with a photo of me in studio, and you can always email me your questions and comments at a measure of truth at gmail.com. Look, we got a great show for you today. We'll be right back after this. Lamont Carey, born in Washington, D.C., is an internationally known and award-winning spoken word artist, as well as a filmmaker, author, workshop facilitator, and motivational speaker. Mr. Carey began his career in the performing arts as a spoken word artist, earning him an appearance on HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam and BET's Lyric Cafe. In 2005, he formed Le Carey Entertainment, LLC, which was instrumental in casting over 200 actors, including himself, on HBO's series The Wire. Mr. Carey has also been featured on various radio shows, including Washington, D.C.'s WHUR, WPGC, WPFW, and Canada's KCUA, as well as the Michael Basin Show and the Al Sharpton Show. His play, Learning to Be Mommy, debuted at the John F. Kennedy Center's Terrence Theater in Washington, D.C. Mr. Carey is a dynamic, motivational speaker and workshop facilitator for youth and adults alike. His ability to encourage and affect change has been experienced locally here in the States, Washington, D.C., Texas, and New York, and internationally as far away as Canada, Denmark, and the Bahamas. He's been invited by various government officials and community leaders to host or speak at a number of events, which includes Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, Commission on Black Men and Boys, hearing, which addressed the topic Project Graduation. 
First Steps to Success for Black Men in the District of Columbia. Lamont Carey, welcome to A Measure of Truth. Uh, thank you for having me. Hey, man, uh, it's good to talk with you again. Uh, we met just a few months ago um, on the uh, GoGo Radio show with Haman Palmer um, with uh, Money Matters, I believe it was. Is that correct? Yep, Money Matters, yep. Yeah, yeah, and and I was so impressed with you, and I was just, you know, I was after my producer, you know, telling her for quite some time about you and trying to get you on, but, man, you've been a busy guy. Yeah. I mean, that's a good thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you've been doing um, various tours of radio and things like that. And, um, you know, once I looked at your your bio and some of the other information, I kept thinking to myself, man, where will we begin? Good grief. So much there. <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit about um, you um, coming up as a child in your um, environment at home. Okay. Um, so, you want to well, you know, what kind of child were you? Because, you know, I can see that you have quite the intellect, but it may have been a little misguided maybe in those younger years. But tell us a little bit about some of the things that you were most interested in. When I was a kid, I just was interested in not being pushed over. Oh, no, 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 I did have a hidden passion. I used to have mm-hmm. his box. I used to have his box of G.I. Joe, man, right? Mm-hmm. And that was my world. I used to get them little toys, man. I used to have them in the, under the sink by the bathroom tub, right? So when I get in the tub, they'd be all around the tub. And that was my world. They had their own individual personality, names, and and I think that kind of shaped who I am now in regards to being a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but outside of that, I was just a, a kid that was trying to escape my environment. I mean, I wanted to get out of my house. I wanted to get out of my neighborhood. And I was told that school was one route, but it was going to take me. I had to go do 12 years of school and then college, and maybe I'll get a job, but chances are I wouldn't get something that's going to get me out of the hood. And then the streets said, we can help you get out now. And so mm. I ended up getting involved in, in uh, selling drugs and things of that nature. At, How at young were you when you started like, with that? Eleven. When I, when I physically got involved, but before 11, I learned the drug trade just by coming outside mm. because it happened, like, right in my community. So it wasn't nothing to be playing or walking the fence and seeing a drug transaction take place. So I learned before I actually started. Wow. And tell us some of the things you actually saw that you were able to witness. For instance, uh, I could come outside and I can see a transaction taking place, an addict, which was easily identifiable because those were the things I was trying to escape in my community. Uh, my father was a heroin addict, so I can identify with addicts. Uh, mm. So I can, so I noticed that the younger guys or older guys, they would dress nicer than the addicts usually are. And so I would see the exchanges of money. And so uh, it progressed to me selling drugs kind of like this. Uh, a guy may say, when you see the police come and say, or say five old police or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Not, knowing, not knowing that that alone could have got me arrested and been a part of a conspiracy. So that was the, like right. probably the, one of the first steps where it was actually interaction between me and the dealers. And then, mm. there became, then there became them hiding their stash and saying, uh, I'm about to run around the corner. If you see some my messages, just tell me, right? That's stage two. Stage mm. three might be, can you hold this until I come back? And if mm. somebody asks you for something or who's selling, you sell this one for this amount, this one for that amount. All you got to do is take the money and give them the drugs, boom. So when that, when, when we probably progressed to that stage, say the drug, the piece of crack was $20, and he gave me the 20 or 10 
and being a kid whose family that's on public assistance, $10, man, that goes a long way when they got penny cookies and Chico sticks that's for five cents. And, you know, and so when I come outside, who am I hang around? I'm going to hang around those individuals that either going to send me to the store or give me the hose and drugs because they're going to pay me and I'm going to be able to get to go to the store. So what it usually happens, and after that, you do the transaction, and they give you a little money, and you're happy with that money, and you start staying around them, then they'll give you some more. And then before long, you're out there on your own doing the same thing that you was taught. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that's how it happened for me because I'm, I know that's how I did it to other youngsters. Right, right. So how long was it before you actually became a dealer on your own? And how old were you? Oh, I was a, I was a dealer at 11. Really? So this this was, happened over a few months? Yeah, I was a dealer. Yes, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, clarify that for us. What does that mean that you're a dealer? Tell us what that involved in, and how much is, is an 11-year-old capable of? You know, well, transacting at, you, at the age of eleven. When you when you think about it, we're talking about uh, the crack era, right? Well, at this time, I think I was I was selling was it Love Boat? Might have been Love Boat or Heroin, one of those. But when you think about like say the crack era, like the mid eighties, where you have uh, twenty to forty uh, crack addicts on your block at one time looking for drugs. So for eleven year old, uh it wasn't it, for me it wasn't scary because all of my friends were doing it. Or mm. they were starting to do it. Uh so what that involves well this is how it used to be. They used to give me what was called a ten pack. And the ten pack is ten bags like min like miniature size ziploc bags with with a one one hard cocaine substance, right? And you get they they twenty dollars a piece. So I got ten of them. So that means I had two hundred dollars worth of drugs, right? That I'm mm -hmm. supposed to sell for twenty dollars a piece. And at that time, I think I was getting twenty five dollars off for the off for the two hundred. So that's how young I was because I didn't know no better. I'm taking all the risks. And I'm making, no, actually it was $50 because I had to give back $150. So that's what I mean by dealing. So I'm out there, I'm selling the, the, the $10 bag, I mean the $20 bags that I have a stash of 10 And then I, if I sell out fast, then they'll double it. And then it just moves on and on. And then before you know what I was getting, what's called, I think it's like a quarter of a key, which is like three ounces and a half ounce of crack cocaine, and so at eleven years I, old, yeah, probably yeah. By the by the time I'm close to twelve, mm. no, no, no. Eight, at eleven, at eleven, it was more of 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 love boat, PCP, heroin. So mm. by the by the time I was thirteen, I think it was more crack. Now, were you armed as well at this time at that young age? I was armed at probably. Probably thirteen. I, I was armed. Wow. Now and this that's a natural progression for a drug dealer. Violence gonna come into play because one of the things that drug the the drug dealers that teaches you this they teach you that you're you're at you're at risk of being robbed that you're. Uh, being robbed means your stash being stolen from crackheads. You're being robbed by stick-up boys. You're being robbed by the police. And so they make you feel that you have to protect yourself. And the only way that you can protect yourself because you're small is to have a gun. Mm. And then there's something about getting that gun that automatically, automatically makes you feel more powerful. And so violence comes into play like soon after that because you can't wait to test it. Then you got to think, I was a kid that didn't like the people in my community. And so mm -hmm. if I already don't like you, 
chances are I don't have a problem hurting you. Mm-hmm. So, but the catch that most young people don't know that gets involved with drugs is that most of the murders, most of the shootings, are young people shooting, killing their friends. Mm. Because we we stay we stay confined to our community, and so we're taught not to trust anyone, and so that eventually that crosses over to our friends, especially when. If it's me and you that's selling drugs, Mike, and you're making more money, I might become envious of you. So if you, when I see you stash your, your product outside, I might steal it, or I might break into your house to steal your safe and so forth. And so when you find out, you retaliate. So mm. that, was, that was my younger years. So tell us about the situation that um, sent you to prison. What, what transpired then? Guns out. A guy was shot, and and I went to prison behind it. Uh, mm. So I went, I went to prison for attempted murder. Wow. And I and, and this was at the age of sixteen. Oh man. So you you had been in the game for a while, and um, right. You, you this was pretty much. When did you leave school? I left school, uh, well, first of all, I had stayed back twice in elementary school. Hmm. So when I got to junior high, I think I was like 13, but I was only in junior high maybe like a few months because uh, once the summer came, I mean, when, 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 it, when they called my mother and told my mother that I was transferring to high, I mean, junior high school, and then when I started to show up at high, junior high school, I realized that those hours that I spent in school, I could have been spending making some money on the block. So I, mm. I may have stayed, I may have stayed in junior high school maybe three to four months top. That was once being a young guy. By this time, by 13, I had an apartment, I had a car, so once that celebrity wore off of being a young guy with all of that stuff. You were driving the car at 13? Hell yeah. Remember I told you about crackheads? Remember I told you about crackheads, right? Right. Some of them have, some of them have more credit than, credit than they have money. And so oh, I, would make, wow. I would make a deal. I would give them this amount of drugs so they get a car, get a car for me in their name. And so wow. this is when they, this is when, this is this is before that you really had to have insurance. Mm-hmm. And so that that's how I was able to get a car, just through addicts. So when you went to to prison for, uh, you, you said how long ago did you? It was eleven years ago you went to prison. How much time did you actually do? Oh, I did a total of eleven years. Wow, and this I'm number 11, 11 keeps coming up again. Do you understand that? Have you, did you just hear that? You uh, started at 11. You got out of prison wow. 11 years ago, and well, you did 11 years. Right. Wow. Wow, I never thought of that. You could have been Miss Cleo, bro. <laughs> I don't think so, man. <laughs> I'm a Christian. I'm a God-fearing man. I don't play with that. <laughs> yeah, I never but, thought uh, of that. Yeah, and, and this is just amazing because, you know, I was talking to some people uh, about why I'm so impressed with your story. You know, about about what? Why I'm so impressed with your story? Because oh, okay. So many people go in and then they come out and they go back in again. But for me, I had this thing in my mind that for you, prison was like a slingshot, and you would pull back into this thing with all this tension in this environment and you had a plan. And when you were let go, you flung out of that thing and you just kept right on going. And it seems like something changed in you in, in your ideals, your, your mindset. And you were able to take the, the wisdom and the knowledge you've learned for, from life experiences and create some lessons that taught you some type of discipline in the process. You see right. what I'm saying? Because 
you've been su- successful in so many different areas and arenas. It, it just floors me. So I'm trying to probe and try to find a way to connect the dots and see where this all has transpired. So, so tell us about when you first went to prison. What was that like for you? Uh, when I first went, it was, I mean, I went to what was called, first of all, they sent me to a juvenile facility, and then they said that uh, I was too aggressive to be housed in the juvenile facility because I was charged as an adult. So they sent me to an adult. Were there uh, actions that said that you were aggressive? Were there things that occurred in incidents, or did they just say that? By the time, by the time I was a, by the time I was charged as an adult, I'm I, I'm sure I had several gun charges. Uh, I had been charged before for some other violent acts. I have been accused mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. extreme violent acts. So by the time they charged me as an adult, I had a history of being acu- accused of being extremely violent. So they, they mm-hmm. put me in they put me in adult jail but housed me in uh, a juvenile block. I and see. so now the crazy thing is the juvenile block is way more violent and aggressive than the adult block. Because we we are trying to prove to ourselves and to the adults that we ain't going for nothing, that we ain't scared of nobody. So the more that happened in the juvenile block, the more the world, the word traveled throughout the jail. And, and so when you see the adults, they'd be like, man, y'all are youngest down there. Y'all are crazy. So with being in the, the adult jail housing the juvenile block, it probably was one of the worst things that could happen because we're trying to prove, we're still trying to prove we're a man. We're still trying to prove that we are fearless. So I didn't get scared, really, until I got my time. And then I'm on this uh, this bus going to this adult prison. Ain't no more juvenile block. It's the straight adult prison I'm going to now. And I had a guy that was sitting next to me. You could probably hear his teeth shattering, his nail, his knees locking, and so that made me scared. And so we, by the time we had, before we reached this prison, we had made a pact that if anybody jumped out, anybody confronted me or him in in a wrong, aggressive, predatory kind of way, we was going to slaughter them. So. When we pull up to the the prison, which was called Eastern Correctional Institution in Maryland, uh, it looked like the juvenile facility. So that kind of took away a lot of my fears. And, and then when I got in there, then I seen that these weren't juveniles. So uh, got in a few altercations uh, trying to prove I'm a man and so forth and so forth. So that was like the beginning of me getting arrested and first entering prison. I'm, my goal was to make sure I don't end up being nobody baby mother. Mm-hmm. I hear you. So, wow. So once I, uh, once I, I picked up quick that uh, being aggressive and violent wasn't going to be the way for me to get home. But the thing that changed, oh, I'm sorry, I'm waiting till you, you get me wherever you're going. So that was, that's that's how it was when I first went to prison. No, 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 you were you were bringing it right around, you know, oh. because. But let's just talk about some of these lessons you learned because you you had to have a goal. And you had to, you talked about you had to get yourself out of there and you had to think of a process that will allow you to not only get out, but to stay out. Tell us about what was in your your head at that point. What did you think you were going to be capable of doing? You're talking about the goal that led up to prison? No, the goal that that got you out. I mean, you you had to do your time. You had to change the way 
you, your behavior was in prison as well. So just talk a little bit about what you decided to change and what was this new discipline of yours to be able to focus and get through this. I, the, the thing that really helped me change was that the, pe- the, the, the people I would have killed for or died for on the streets, they wasn't coming to visit me. They wasn't sending me no money. They wasn't accepting the phone calls. They weren't sending me letters. And so I was abandoned by this this street that I supposedly loved, these individuals that I was supposed to die for. It, in the end, it showed that I wasn't as big of a part of their life as as they were of mine. And so... Uh, I, my, I was I was heartbroken, and uh, so I I had to. The other thing was that I realized after I discovered that that this whole life that I had been living was a fantasy. Mm-hmm. So it really didn't exist. I would have died for this block. I would have died for these dudes that I hung with, but they didn't give a damn about me. So my loyalty was displaced, and so mm-hmm. I was left. I was left in adult prison because I wanted to to escape and be committed with my dues, my, the chicks I dealt with, and all of this old stuff. So everything that I thought I was doing to improve myself, it really just led me to prison. And so once I discovered that the life that I lived didn't exist. I had to find out who Lamont Curry was because I was going by a nickname there during that time. And so once, because so the nickname had the lifestyle, the nickname had the image. And so when I realized that all of that was nothing, I had to get to know Lamont Curry. And that probably was the second time that I ever had turned to God outside of, you know, going to court saying, God, please don't let them, don't let them convict me. God, please don't let these men get on my butt. So I, I went to God, and I was basically like, if you help me get out of here, I promise you that I'll change. Hmm. So then I had to come back to God and be like, God, but I don't know nothing. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, so I, I need you to teach me something so I can stay, stay free when I get a chance to be free. And so... Uh, God introduced me to writing, hmm. and and first God introduced me to rapping, and I, I was not good at all of that. And so I was challenged by one of the guys that routinely rap to write a book, and I had wrote my first book in thirty days. And so really, right? So what I was the name of that? Capers. Okay. It's called Capers about these three guys that do the stick up that send their life into this totally different direction. Oh, mm. so but before then, right before then, well no, actually doing then I I had got a GED. Mm-hmm. And so now remember I was a guy that didn't think I was gonna live to be eighteen or twenty one. And so I got this G D and then I was like, wow, that wasn't that hard. And I, so I enrolled in a college program. And so I, I took up business management. And in business management, that's where I learned, like, when they started talking about supply and demand, I was like, I know that. When they were talking, <laughs> <Absolutely. about distribution, laughs> talking about distribution, I said, I definitely know how to do that. And so I learned that I was a businessman when I was in the street. Right. It just I was just a legal businessman. And so when I was introduced to writing, uh, the biggest breakthrough was when the guy that challenged me to to write a book, when he enjoyed it and said that his sale buddy wanted to read it, mm-hmm. and somebody else wanted to read it, and somebody else wanted to read it, and somebody else. And I was like, damn, I might have something here because it's hard as hell to impress inmates. Right. And so then I continue. Right. Then I continue to write books. I continue to write books, and so 
the college program had allowed me to uh, to visualize being legit. The books gave me a product that I can push to make money off of while being as part of me being legit. But the, the biggest thing that had to occur was that I had to find out what I want. Who am I? Because I didn't mm-hmm. even know what my favorite colors were. You know what I'm saying? Because I had lived this image so long, I was never Lamont Curry, my mother's mm-hmm. son. Mm-hmm. And so, so once uh, my thinking changed or the way I saw my future, because the other thing was that People with broken dreams used to tell me that the white man ain't gonna let me be nothing. Why well, go to through school and graduate? The white man ain't gonna let you be nothing. So that was another, like early on, I forgot to mention that part. And so that would made the streets more appealing. So once once I I discovered in the college program that I already knew what some Fortune 500 executives know that I knew firsthand. Mm -hmm. So I was like, man, I got something here. And so before I came home, I looked around, and one of the things that I understood was that the one thing that all of us in prison had in common was loneliness. And so Mm -hmm. I had this bright idea to do a prison inmate calendar, right? Because firemen did calendars, policemen (laughs) did calendars, models and strippers did calendars, and women be fiending over the body. I was like, all oh, these dudes around here lifting every weight in the gym, pulling themselves on every monkey bar that exists, muscles everywhere. I said, they got to love this. And they say the good girls like bad boys, so I'm going to give them a calendar. So I started approaching, like, uh, dudes from the Iron Brotherhood, dudes from the Mexican Mafia, black gang members. And I got all these dudes to take these pictures. Because the deal was it was going to help them get them some women. And now, so, you crossed some lines there. So, you know, how were you approaching, you know, these various gang groups and entities, and, and it was okay for you to do that? The, the, the one thing that the media teaches about prison is the biggest, one of the biggest lies. Now, these gangs exist, right? Mm-hmm. But we all live in this one facility. We all have to interact with one another on some form because you have as much drugs in prison as you have on the street. And so a lot of times the the Iron Brotherhood be like one of the main suppliers. And this is, in my opinion, is because a lot of times the staff is Caucasian. And so mm. they look out for their brothers. And so you have them selling drugs and their customers, the connect may be the uh, Colombians and or Italians and customers may be the blacks and this and this and this. So you already have uh, us intermingling or doing trades or things of that nature. Because I ran a store for a while and in prison. And so, They'll, if they run out of food and they know I got a store and they want some some sardines and some oodles and noodles or a bag of party mix, they're going to come and get it from me. So it's not like we don't communicate. It's just when if, if you're a white guy and I'm a black guy and we have a dispute, then it sections off into these different races. You're not just going to beat up a brother or you're not going to just beat up a white guy without retaliation because Everybody's supposed to protect their own and all this and all that. So, mm. but remember, the one thing I said that we all had in common was loneliness. Mm-hmm. And to, to escape that loneliness, man, we are crossed on racial lines. So it was, I was like the, uh, the rose of pop. I gave them an opportunity to change, to, to help them to get something. And so that's how, I mean, some of them told me no, of course, but it's always one. Mm-hmm. And so I came, I came home with probably like 24 pitches or so to do this calendar. And, uh, and so when I came home, I, I ended up, a business manager told me to uh, 
Then I expand the idea and turn it into a pen pal website versus just a calendar. And so I did that, and I created this company called Serving in Time that still exists. Hmm. And so, so yeah, that's where we're at. <laughs> now, it, it seems to me um, a- after you got out, you turned every experience into a, a business of some sort. Now, let's talk a little bit about The Wire and um how did you first find your way onto the wire and, um, you know, then developing your company as well? Talk a little bit about that. Uh, I was in the play, like, from the company, the, the, the Prisoner of Love, which is called Serving Time. I eventually, I was asked to make it even bigger and start a, a nonprofit. So I started a nonprofit called Contact Visit. And so during one of these meetings where I'm trying to partner with organizations, I meet a guy by the name of Archie Childs. And Archie, turns out, had a theater troupe. And so I became part of the theater troupe and eventually became his VP. And uh, so I was in this play, and a producer from The Wire uh, liked my, my performance. And so they reached out and asked me would I be interested in, in, in coming on to the show and doing something on the show. So I was like, yeah. And so once that happened, I'm an opportunist. I'm trying to find my way. Remember, I don't have no work experience, right? Right, so, right. So when I get opportunities, I try to figure out how to extend them and expand them. And so when they, when I went to, to audition, uh, for the show, I start talking about what are their casting needs because I know a whole lot of guys from D.C. that are thugs that look the part of the show and so forth. And so I was able to uh, be brought on as part of the casting under Pat Moran. And and I mm-hmm. talked about that casting. For, cast, I probably put about 260 people on the show, but th- these weren't really like major roles enough. It was more of extra mm-hmm. background, day right. players, and things of that nature. So I wasn't wow. responsible for casting like Omar. I wasn't responsible for none of that. Right, right. <laughs> the whole thing is, is um, you were able to um, get in, and then from there um, find a way to um, expand upon that, just like you said. You know, uh, that's just incredible. Extend and expand opportunities. I like that. It's like uh, it's like your your mantra. And um, so you've published a number of books as well. So I know we're probably jumping around. When did you first start um, writing and um, how did you find a way to publish your books? Let's talk a little bit about that. Okay, first, can I say this? The. Be, the the thing that that created the platform for me really was once I start once I discovered this spoken word thing, mm-hmm. and and because the spoken word is how I ended up getting the audition for another play while I was with the OZD project. The play that the producer from The Wire saw me on was another play. And so spoken word had opened up these doors. And so as I started touring around the country doing spoken word and winning awards and winning some slams, uh, I was like, hold on, I got I to gotta meet a nice little fan base, right? <laughs> let, me, let me re-look at these books because the, 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 the po- people, poets been put, was putting out books. They was putting out chat books and things like that. And so my first product was a CD that I freestyled the whole CD called Imagine. Mm. And so because poets was putting out poetry books, I didn't want to put out the same thing that they were doing. So I said, let me put out, because my image was already rugged, uh, hood. So I said, putting out one of the novels that I wrote in prison wouldn't be too far-fetched for my audience. And so right. my my first book that I put out 
was a prison book that I wrote while in prison called The Heal. And mm-hmm. and why I, and why I went the self publishing route because while I was in prison, after I got my work copyrighted, I started submitting them to publishers, and publishers were saying that they don't accept unsolicited manuscripts; they have to be presented by an agent. And so I started submitting them to agents, and agents were saying that they don't represent an artist unless they have already been published. And I was like, how the hell? How the hell am I supposed <laughs> to get in? Right? Right. So I did, that is the main reason why I went, I did self-publishing. So I I asked some of the poets, how did they get their books, how much did it cost, and I found something that was reasonable for me, and then I published my first book, The Heal. Uh, and thanks to, like, MySpace, well, Facebook and Twitter like that, that helped spread the word on my work, but more, I sold more books out of the trunk of my car at the Safeway, at the Giant, at ball games, and wherever else. So with combining all of that together helped me to sell a whole lot of books because I was already involved in so many of these different other mediums. that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Trust me, we are getting there. Because uh, what I'm okay. trying to do is just peel back the layers, and okay. um, there's there's no real rhyme or reason of how I'm trying to approach this because the stories have stories within themselves. And, and just tell us what um, what the art form of spoken word means to you. What was it for you? What was what type of expression was it? What did it do for you that you said to yourself, "This is my thing." Uh, spoken word literally changed my life. It it gave me a voice because up until and I I got in spoken word by running my mouth, talking trash, right? Mm-hmm. I was invited I was invited to this poetry place by a host. I didn't even know what spoken word was. As far as I knew, I didn't like poetry. It was Shakespeare, and I ain't understand it. And all the dudes that did it was soul. Right? right, and right. so when I come to this venue and some poets was doing their poems, one was like, "I'll lay you across the moon and suck raindrops from your feet." I'm like, "What in the hell is that?" So I'm like, "Man, I could do better than that." And then the host, when he got back up there, he said, "The next poet to the mic is Lamont Terry." I said, "Oh my God!" So by me having been been a, being a part of the theater troupe, I knew how to improv, and so. Mm. So he just called you out. You had no plan to to get up there and do anything, or or had you? Man, I ain't never had a poem. <laughs> but and, one of the and things, you're in a room full of people who that's their thing. They appreciate spoken word, and right. So, just tell us what happened. So you got to remember, I come from a lifestyle where you show no fear. Right. You don't post to back down from nothing. And so mm-hmm. this was one of those situations. And so I freestyled the piece. Didn't even know I was doing spoken word. And they clapped. I said, huh? So I came mm-hmm. back again another time. And uh, after I finished performing, not only did they clap, somebody asked me, did I have a CD or a book for sale? I said, uh-oh. <laughs> I can make money off of this. <laughs> and so... Uh, within a week, I went to a studio and I freestyled my whole CD with the title Imagine. I made up every piece. The engineer, I was like, give me a subject, give me a word, and I was just making up pieces until we got to like 14 uh, pieces, and then that was my CD. And so spoken word, it changed my life in a sense uh it was more fast, faster moving than the nonprofit because mm-hmm. I couldn't find funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 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 it was more faster than the Prisoner for Love, which is serving in time because I, I really wasn't sure how to market it. But spoken word, because they had poetry venues around D.C., all I had to do was go, signed up, and it's on. And mm-hmm. so... 
And so within that same year or or the year after, I get a call from Russell Simmons saying they want me to be on Deaf Poetry Jam. Wow. And and then the next year or two years after that, I get a call from BET. They want me to be on Lyric Cafe. So by this time, I'm already performing in schools for organizations. So I'm making a nice little living off of spoken word. But what it did for me, it allowed me to add my perspective, my voice, my fears, my hopes, and to uh, give me a platform to express those. And and so for me, it helped. It helped me. It helped shape me into the man that I am now because I discovered things about myself that I didn't know until I started creating uh, spoken word pieces. And I. And the other thing that it did, it did, it, it taught me that other people care about what I feel, but more importantly, because mm-hmm. they were dealing with it, they yes. were dealing with it, or, and they didn't know how to express it, and I expressed right. it for them. Mm-hmm. So the impact, the impact that I was having on children and adults, white and black, Spanish or what have you, was mind-blowing. I couldn't believe it. Sometimes these people will hang around till everybody stops talking to me just so they can have an opportunity to say that I made them cry because I told their story. Mm. And and so yeah. that helped me keep going. That helped me that helped me uh continue to reveal some of the things that I know. A lot of it I never experienced like as it happened to me but I have experienced it by witnessing it. You know what I'm saying? So uh, that's how my world opened. And then I mm. started getting people wanted me to be the keynote speaker of this. They wanted to know, yeah. could I teach a workshop? They wanted to know, could I teach kids how to do poetry? They wanted me to talk to kids to prevent them from committing crimes and and, and talk to ex-offenders on how to successfully transition their life and so I, who, I would have never imagined that my experiences, I could build a career off of it and not only help repair some of the damage that I've done, but mm. I can also save other people from experiencing it. So when you ask me what has spoken word done for me, it helped me make the world a better place. I hear you. And at the same time, it helped me to become a better person. Wow. You know, um, I want you to say a little bit more about poetry, but I just wanted to put it out there for people who really don't understand poetry, people who don't understand spoken word as an art form, as the expression that it is. Um, I, I, I remember I saw a spoken word artist just not too long ago. And one of the things I observed, I'm always not just watching that person, uh, I'm checking out what it's doing for me as well as the people around me. And this this young Asian guy was doing this spoken word, and he was talking about his relationship with his father and about his life and about what people thought of him. And I said to myself, this guy is not just doing poetry. He's He's letting me watch him heal himself from his experiences. This is how he's coped and dealt with it, and he's healing himself. And it's an amazing thing to watch that occur right in front of you. And and that's what it is. People get so deep into their emotions and can express that where other people have those same problems, same emotions, but they're locked. They're locked in. And when they see you unlock and and tell everything that's on your mind, they, they can be amazed just by that one event. Yep. Now, and, and you, again, you had a life um, when you came out. Let, let's just go back to that, too. You, you, okay. You're out of prison now, and you, you're on a mission. you got all these things going on. Now, I know that the same temptations and influences that you had left before you went in were still around you and your circle of friends or 
just in your, your lifestyle at that time when you first got out, how did you avoid falling back into the rut? Uh, it's, it's, it's the, it, was, it was several factors. The, one of the factors was that a lot of my friends were in jail, and they were in jail for killing some of my other friends. And, and so those that were left, those that were still in society when I returned, the majority of them had already changed their life. Mm. They were working and doing whatever. And those that didn't, like one guy, he came and he brought me a gun when he tried to bring me a gun. But he he was only, he, he was, he was doing what he remembered. That if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Right, right. So but the biggest thing is was that Mike, once you change Mike, mm-hmm. the world changes around yes. you, right? Exactly, yeah. And so, you know how people say you gotta change people, places and things. I don't agree with that. As long as you change yourself, those mm-hmm. same communities that I left didn't look the same to me, mm. right? The people that I dealt with, I didn't see them the same way that I saw them in the past. And mm. the place, I couldn't change the place because I didn't have the money to change the place. So, but as, but because I was determined that I'm not going back to prison, right. I'm, I'm, I'm not breaking no more law that, it's like when you when you're in the midst of something, it's hard to see how to get out of it. But once you remove yourself and you look in on it, you can see like, cause like man, I'm like man, I could have been, uh, uh, highly successful, saved many lives if I mm. had known mm. what I mm. know now. Right. So, but back to your question, I dealt with the temptation because I had already reap the consequences wow. <laughs> of what those temptations will lead me to. Right. So that's how I deal with it. Now, bear in mind, my life up until that point was mostly in the street, hustling, committing crimes, and in prison. So those are mm-hmm. two different two different violent cultures. So the the thing I had to struggle with the most was when a, a guy may walk past me and may grit on me. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, frown at me, look me up and down like I'm not nothing and blah. And, and every every nerve in my body saying smack his brains out, right? Mm-hmm. But the new me, like, man, that ain't nothing but a look, right? And you have an right. advantage because... He's looking at you as less than him, seeing himself superior than you when he knows what he knows not what you are capable of. And so that kind of it's probably sounding weird, but that empowered me. Yeah, you're just I saying knowing something. yourself, the power right. of knowing who you are, and not letting right. anybody change that for you at any given moment. Right, because remember, Mike, I'm a poet. So remember how my thoughts on poets that poets were soft. So I run into that from time to time where I got to continue to say to Mark, their, their opinion or impression of you don't make you so, blah, blah, blah. And so that's mm-hmm. how I'm able to deal with it. Oh, yeah. or I can write a book and I can torture <laughs> body and fiction. <laughs> so, I mean, it's way, uh, but again, the, the biggest thing, Mike, is when I changed the way I thought Everything else around me changed. So that was the biggest. That was the biggest thing for me. Now, um, you know, we're, we're getting close to the end of the show. Do you have anything that comes to mind as, as a spoken word piece that you could do for us? Uh, oh yeah, I could do the the streets keep calling. But first, can I let them know the website just in case? Yeah, yeah, we're gonna to... definitely do okay. that. Go ahead, give okay. them the website. So my website, ladies and gentlemen, is lamontcarry.com. So that's L-A-M-O-N-T-C-A-R-E-Y 
that combo. If you just, for the most part, you can either Google Yahoo Lamont C A, and my name will come up. But that's just in case you want me to come and speak at an event, a school, a prison, or what have you. That is one of the ways to catch me. So the piece that I'm going to do, or purchase books that I have, mm-hmm. uh, CD or whatever your interest may be, that is a good way to find out what I'm doing and how to get in contact with me. So the piece, the piece that I can think of is the streets keep calling because this is the point we at. What happened when I came home? Uh, see, today was my first day back on the streets. And I got a secret to tell because this was a rude awakening for me. See all the nights that I sat up on that bunk and dreamed about this day. Now reality and hope just don't look the same. So instead of dream. See, this is the first time in my life that I've ever felt the shame. See, I have to go live back at my mother's house. And including her, everybody in there, they want me out. See, they say I'm just another monster feed, and there isn't no place in there for me to sleep. And then the streets start to whisper to me, Lamar, come back. You ain't got to live like that. The streets ain't change. You still know this game. See, the streets keep calling me by my first name. And all my buddies I thought was going to take care of me when I came home. Now they moving in the cell. I just left or they dead and gone. So I'm out here alone trying to fend for myself. And every time I look in your direction, you lower your eyes or your head. So from you, I can't get no help. And then the streets start to whisper to me, Lamar, come back. You ain't got to live like that. The streets ain't changed. You still know this game. See, the streets keep calling me by my first name. And, Mike, for them to hear the rest of that, because we sure on time, they're going to have to visit, visit the website and hit the uh, the video, the streets keep calling me. All right. Okay. Yeah. As a matter of fact, we're probably going to post it. Can I post it on my Facebook page? Yes, you can, sir. All right, yeah, we'll go ahead and post that. The streets keep calling. Wow, yeah, that was the one. <laughs> you know, we talked so earlier. That's it. So our, conversation, our conversation would lead us to the one we need to hear, and that that was uh-huh. definitely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for the hear the rest of that, it's it's a whole lot more to it. So they want to hear the rest of it. That's mm-hmm. how they see it. once you post it or go to the website. But right. uh, the. The the website is lamontcurry.com. Now, Mike, can I tell you real quick about the books? Sure, yeah. Yeah, we wanted to get into that. You're right on time. Oh, I'm sorry, Mike. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You're good to go. Okay. <laughs> if you're interested in reading the book that I wrote while in prison, The Heal, this is a great opportunity to get it. Uh, Kendall Nook, my website, you get an autographed copy, but it's a it's the it's a guy's journey through one of the worst prisons in the country. Uh and now there's a sequel out to it that's available now, the wall. So they they show you a side of prison that you have never even imagined. And I just released uh this summer a book of poems called Reaching to My Darkness. I hate this place. And right, right. Uh, Lamont, man, we are out of time, man. Okay. okay <laughs> I'm going to have to have Mike. you back. Huh? All right. That's, uh, that's uh, That sounds good, man. I really enjoyed it. It was a great show. Special thanks to our producer, Donna Hardiman. I'm Michael Fordham, and you've been listening to A Measure of Truth on blogtalkradio.com. And before you go, here's a little something to take with you. Ask God for wisdom daily, but know that your lesson can come from anybody or any situation, good or bad, friend or foe. Watch your thoughts. They become words. And watch your words. They become actions. And watch your actions. They become habits. And watch your habits. They become your character. And watch your character. It becomes death. Until we meet again, take care of what becomes of you.